Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. And is this the key that would actually... Yes, that's Here's me a couple weeks ago. I'm in a place that, well, I don't really want to be. So, Al, why don't you have a seat right here in the crew commander's chair, and I'm going to take a seat here in the deputy crew commander's chair. I'm pretending to be a crew commander at a former nuclear missile site. I'm sitting in a cushy chair, staring at a wall of dials and buttons labeled things like readiness control and stage one pressure. Let's say it's 1983. NATO is conducting uh, an exercise known as Able Archer. My guide is Yvonne Morris. If anyone knows what to do in this commander's chair, she does. In the 1980s, Yvonne was a lieutenant in the Air Force. She led crews at this nuclear missile site and others just like it. NATO had moved a lot of forces around. And at the moment, don't touch that. The old-fashioned light-up buttons tempt me. Although, they terrify me too. Before we get to any buttons, though, let me tell you why we're here. President Trump is proposing to overhaul the U.S. nuclear arsenal. He said a lot of things that make a lot of people wonder how willing he would be to use nuclear weapons, particularly facing off with North Korea. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. The president is the only one who can authorize using nukes. I wanted to get some kind of feel for what it's like to be a part of that chain of command. We drove a half an hour south of Tucson to see what's essentially a fenced-in spot in the desert. Watch your head here. 35 feet underground, Yvonne takes us past a set of gigantic concrete doors. So how the crew would enter the missile site is through a series of these blast doors that each weigh three tons. This missile site was built in 1963. It held a Titan II ballistic missile that could deliver a nuclear warhead halfway around the world. So we'll head down this way. Past the entry blast doors, an underground corridor opens up. It takes a couple minutes to walk right up to the missile. This is it, huh? That's it. It's 103 feet tall. It's 10 feet in diameter. The nose cone up above, the part that's brown, that's where the warhead would have been. U.S. Air Force is stenciled in black paint on the shiny metal of the Titan II. These were taken out of service when missile safety and accuracy improved. This launch site became a museum in the 1980s. Random question. Mm -hmm. If the government decided that they wanted to use this site to launch another missile, could they do that pretty easily? I mean, it seems like... It would be easier to start over, start over with Legos and Popsicle sticks. <laughs> okay. Because you, you just can't get yeah. these parts. We head deeper into the silo. I Are just... you claustrophobic? No, not really. Okay, because we're going to be in this elevator for about a minute. Okay, in you go. This ride takes us 125 feet underground. We'll be directly below the rockets that would have shot this missile into space. You need to keep your situational awareness. Cut the headspace there is very restricted, so just be careful. Gotcha. All right, so I'm going to let you walk in first. Just keep in mind what I told you. Yep, gotcha. Situational awareness. Wow. I feel so small standing under this old missile. 
It looms above me, a giant tube of silver and white. I forget Yvonne's warning and tip my head back to look up and see metal, 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 and finally sky. Being here, it's hard to process the emotions, right? Because it's like, it's amazing, but also it's, you know, the purpose of it is to kill people. And back in that commander's chair, that's what's on my mind. This combination of brilliant human ingenuity and deadly destructive power. We have to get to our stations. We need to get ready to copy an emergency action message. Yvonne is running me through a simulation. A president has just ordered a nuclear strike. We copy down the letters and the numbers coming over the radio. We double-check them. Four, three, Lima. Okay. So, Commander, they match. Do you agree? I agree. All right. Then we have a valid launch order. The missile here doesn't have a warhead. It doesn't even have fuel. Still, I'm feeling uncomfortable. So, Crew Commander, typically what you do is you would give a countdown, three, two, one, turn. Turn, not push. There's no launch button. To fire a missile, two crew members turn separate keys at the same time. And then you would count down backwards, five, four, three, two, one, and say release, because the key switches have to be held in the on position by both officers for five seconds to initiate the launch sequence. So, on your mark, Commander. On my mark, three, two, one, turn. Five, four, three, two, one. That klaxon means that the stage one engine has fired. Al and I have now started something that we can't stop. It would have taken about half an hour before the missile delivered a nuclear explosion thousands of miles away. That's how nuclear missiles would have been launched 40 years ago. I wanted to know how it works now. The actual process, that's still very similar. You still have a process where you have to authenticate your launch order. The officers have to cooperate, just like we had to cooperate. And it still takes turning two keys same moment in time. Somehow, we're living in an era where the danger of nuclear war no longer feels like some abstract piece of history. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. Today, we're looking at nuclear threats. We'll take you to Iran, we'll talk North Korea, but we begin at home. His reveals Emily Harris. President Trump threatened Rocket Man last fall. A couple of months later, this happened. We are concerned that the president of the United States is so unstable, is so volatile, has a decision-making process that is so quixotic that he might order a nuclear weapons strike that is wildly out of step with U.S. national security interests. That's Chris Murphy. He's a Democratic senator from Connecticut. He's speaking about whether this president, or any president, should have the sole authority to order a nuclear attack. This is at a Senate hearing in November. Our first witness today is General Bob Kaler. Commander of the United States Strategic Command from 2011 to 2013. Bob Kaler wears a coat and tie. His horn-rimmed glasses remind me of a style that was popular back when nuclear weapons were invented. In front of a full hearing room, including a few anti-nuclear activists, the now-retired general tries to dial back concerns. For nuclear decision-making at the highest level, it's a, it's a consultative process. Yes, The president is the only person who can order a launch. But Kaler said that top generals, advisors, and government lawyers could question that decision. Senator Ron Johnson, a Wisconsin Republican, wants to know exactly how they would challenge the president. You believe that is your responsibility. You have the authority to say this is not legal because we have not followed the steps. We haven't gone through the process. I would have said I have a question about this, and I would have said, I'm not ready to proceed. And then what happens? Well, 
you know, as I say, I don't know exactly. You don't know. No, fortunately, we've never. These are all hypothetical scenarios. One hypothetical scenario brought up in the hearings was the president waking up generals in the middle of the night, declaring that he wants to launch a nuclear strike. Michaela Dodge, a senior defense policy analyst at the Conservative Heritage Foundation, says that notion is ridiculous. The idea that the president says, I have a headache today, let's nuke North Korea, that's just silly. It's just plain silly. Michaela knows a lot about nuclear policy, and she gets a little annoyed when I start asking about controversy over the president's temperament. Despite Trump's tweet about his big nuclear button, Michaela believes he understands the seriousness of nuclear war. Plus, she says changing the command structure would create delays and uncertainties, and that could make the U.S. appear vulnerable to its enemies. Introducing problems into nuclear command and control because you don't like who is the president, which, by the way, Americans elected. That is not the president's problem. That is not the command and control problem. What problem is it? It's maybe problem on the perception um, of people who perceive um, personality of the president. Some lawmakers have introduced bills to limit presidential power to order a nuclear strike. But no one I talked to for this story thinks those have a real chance of going anywhere. Congress is fractured, and it would be a big deal to change. The U.S. president has had sole authority since the first bomb was dropped in 1945. Then Michaela mentions a different threat. She doesn't worry about Trump. What I worry about is how the Russians think about using nuclear weapons. This makes a lot of sense to hear from her. She grew up in the Czech Republic, a tiny country that's been a front line of the Russian-U.S. rivalry for decades. And she's not the only one wary of Russian nukes. Russia continues to conduct dangerous nuclear exercises directed against the United States, NATO allies. That's Republican Congressman Mike Rogers. I think we're all concerned about the Russian doctrine of escalating to de-escalate. That's Democratic Congresswoman Susan Davis. And here's Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis. Moscow advocates a theory of nuclear escalation for military conflict. And we cannot ignore their investments in nuclear weapons. Last month, the Trump administration rolled out its new nuclear weapons strategy. It's a 100-page document, and it mentions Russia 127 times. That's more than twice as often as North Korea or China. So what's the plan all about? As part of our defense, we must modernize and rebuild our nuclear arsenal, hopefully never having to use it, but making it so strong and so powerful that it will deter any acts of aggression by any other nation or anyone else. While some people see Trump's temperament as a reason to rein in the president, the new plan argues for expanding his nuclear options. It envisions the biggest spike in nuclear weapons spending since the Cold War. It doubles the current costs for several years, adding up to more than $1.2 trillion over the next three decades. President Obama also favored modernizing the arsenal. But President Trump takes things further. He's made it clear the U.S. might use nukes in response to a non-nuclear attack. And he wants new kinds of weapons. We're going to be so far ahead of everybody else in nuclear like you've never seen before. This feels familiar. During the arms race of the Cold War, the U.S. and Russia, then the Soviet Union, upped their arsenals to threaten total annihilation. A 1983 TV movie called The Day After captured the fears of those times. In the movie, multiple mushroom clouds erupt across the Midwest Plains. In a flash, families are transformed into glowing skeletons. I was a kid then, and like many, I sometimes lay awake at night afraid of nuclear war. So are we headed back to that threat of U.S.-Russia annihilation? Maybe. Maybe not. Trump's new plan aims for flexibility. 
nuclear weapons tailored to respond to different threats. Experts say there's always a possibility of annihilation, but cataclysmic nuclear war is not the only imagined scenario. There are a whole host of circumstances under which nuclear weapons might be used uh, that would fall short of the cataclysmic. Tom Mankin is a former top military guy. He was a deputy assistant secretary of defense under George W. Bush. Now, Tom runs a think tank that focuses on military spending, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Tom says the crucial thing to understand about nuclear policy is that much of the weapons power lies in threats alone. So we use nuclear weapons routinely, even when we're not thinking about it. You mean we use them without exploding them? Exactly, exactly. U.S. officials worry about several specific nuclear threats from Russia. They say Moscow is not complying with a treaty. They believe Russia has many small nuclear weapons that could be used in flexible ways. And they worry Russia would choose to use nukes too quickly. Russia counters this. General, thank you. I'm Alexei Fomenko, uh, second secretary of the Russian embassy. Russian diplomat Alexei Fomenko is a portly man with a lush, dark beard. During a recent policy forum in Washington, D.C., he stood at a mic in the aisle holding a small white notepad. And he asked the top general in charge of U.S. nukes, a question. Why does the U.S. think the threat of Russian nuclear weapons is so real? How did you make the determination that Russia was increasing its reliance on nuclear weapons, especially since, in fact, we're decreasing the reliance? U.S. Strategic Commander General John Hyten stood on stage in a dark blue uniform with four silver stars lining each shoulder and a panel of ribbons decorating his chest. He looked directly at Fomenko and replied. There's an interesting uh, dichotomy in our nation. Uh, we call it the say-do gap, where you uh, say one thing, but you do another. So we listen very closely to what your president says. We listen very closely to what your leadership say. And then we watch very, very closely of what your nation does. In essence, we don't trust you. This feels like deja vu. But some things have changed since the Cold War. Over the past two decades, the number of nuclear weapons ready to go has dropped dramatically. That's because of U.S.-Russia treaties. However, those treaties don't cover all weapons or all countries. And now almost 10 nations have nuclear weapons at their leaders' fingertips. That's Reveal's Emily Harris. As Emily mentioned, President Trump has been focused on Iran, saying it's a real threat when it comes to nuclear safety. To find out how real, we sent a reporter to Tehran. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the longstanding problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Iran has long been considered a major nuclear threat. It was one of the founding members of President Bush's so-called Axis of Evil. Then, in 2015, seven countries signed the historic Iran nuclear deal. Iran agreed to limit its nuclear energy program and the international community lifted some of the crippling economic sanctions. 
This was a crowning achievement for President Obama's administration. One of the big issues? How long would it take Iran to turn its nuclear energy program into a nuclear weapons program? Some estimates said just months. When then-Secretary of State John Kerry testified before Congress, he argued the deal would significantly extend that. Now, we believe that Iran was marching towards a weapon or the capacity to have a weapon, and we've rolled that back, Congress. Okay, that's your opinion. That's indisputable. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Mr. Secretary. That's a fact. The man battling with Kerry is an Iraq war vet and Republican Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. Perry argued that the U.S. shouldn't ease sanctions— that it was giving up too much leverage, and that Iran simply couldn't be trusted. The American people see Iran as like a crocodile or a shark that does what it does. And we're saying, well, we're going to give the crocodile or the shark a few more teeth, and let's see if it does something different. That's just not accurate. Enter Donald Trump. As a candidate, he called the Iran nuclear agreement one of the worst deals ever. As president, he refused to certify it. We will not continue down a path whose predictable conclusion is more violence, more terror, and the very real threat of Iran's nuclear breakout. By refusing to certify the deal, Trump gives Congress the option of imposing fast-track sanctions, potentially undercutting the entire accord. So far, lawmakers haven't done that. But how very real is the Iranian nuclear threat? Reporter Reese Ehrlich has been reporting from Iran for 18 years, and has been investigating that question. He begins our story in Tehran to see how the agreement is affecting people there. Friends often ask if I'm afraid when I report from Iran, and my standard answer is yes. I worry about crossing Tehran's six-lane boulevards. We are now facing hundreds of cars coming down the main street, none of which will stop for pedestrians. And we have to get across by starting and hoping we don't get hit. All right, here we go. One taxi, two taxis, three motorcycles, four taxis, and we are across success. Along for the ride, my translator and fixer, Zara. My name is Zahra Keshavarzi. Zara works at a state-owned TV station. The government assigned her to both help me set up interviews and report back on what I'm doing. In authoritarian countries like Iran, it's the only way journalists can get permission to visit. Okay, so explain what's happening. I don't know. He says we have to go to the office. Zara wears a chador. It's a piece of large black cloth pulled tightly over her head and is covering the upper body. It's common in Iran and differs from a burqa, which completely covers a woman's face. Zara also sports a colored scarf, indicating she's a devout Muslim and stylish. We arrive at a large mosque for Friday prayers. Men wearing suits without ties, mullahs in brown robes, women in all black. Suddenly, a woman approaches. Without me even asking a question, she starts talking into my microphone. Zara translates as the woman lets loose on Trump. Um, well, uh, I really hate the guy, not just for Iran, but for the whole world. Um, he's, uh, I just hope he doesn't start a war. The woman, Masumka, is 63 and a housewife. She tells me she just wants peace and describes Trump as uninformed. I feel sorry for the American people, and they're stuck with uh, this guy. I really don't know why the Americans voted for him. Perhaps not surprisingly, in nearly two dozen interviews in rich and poor neighborhoods of Tehran, I couldn't find anyone who said they liked Trump's policies. But that doesn't mean Iranians are happy with their own government either. I told Zara I wanted to meet working-class Iranians, and she brought me here. To an upscale neighborhood in North Tehran, where her grandparents' apartment has been totally gutted for a remodel. So this is your grandmother's house. Yeah. I, I noticed a shock on your face when you walked in. What, what do we see here? Everything is in a big chaos, so I'm wondering how we're going to fix this old place up. Yeah, yeah. 31-year-old electrician Arya Khosravi splices multicolored wiring while we talk. I've always liked to fix things, like TV and radio and electronic devices, since I was a kid. 
Ariel is an imposing guy, six feet tall, and he speaks with the confidence of a skilled worker. After he finished compulsory military service, he became an electrician's apprentice, then went on to college for two years to become a journeyman. I like to work with electricity. You have to be smart and talented to do this. While the wealthy in Tehran can buy Lamborghinis, Arya, like many workers, struggles to survive. He says he can't afford rent and sometimes stays with relatives or sleeps in refurbished shipping containers at construction sites. He hoped the economy would get better under Hassan Rouhani, the centrist president who was re-elected in 2017. We were waiting for change, but it wasn't much. It hasn't had any effect on the life of the working class. Arya says the Iranian government is spending billions of dollars on Mideast wars when it should be creating jobs at home. Mostly it's the fault of our politicians and authorities because they are looking for a fight in Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine. Arya also blames the U.S. sanctions for the economic problems. While the United States has lifted sanctions related to Iran's nuclear activity, it continues to enforce many others, punishing the country for human rights violations and its ballistic missile program. Arya tells me the sanctions even affect his work as an electrician. Instead of buying electrical fuses from U.S. and European manufacturers, he says he has to buy inferior quality materials from other countries. For example, now we have these fuses from Turkey. I had to change them three times so far. The better quality American and English fuses are not imported anymore. While President Trump continues to talk about the threat of Iran one day obtaining nuclear weapons, Arya, like most Iranians, believes that his country has never had a nuclear weapons program and that the Iranian government is only interested in developing nuclear energy. We shouldn't worry about Iran making a nuclear weapon. Right now, the government is more interested in getting nuclear power. That's what the Iranian government has been saying for years. I pay a visit to Iran's majlis or parliament. Oh, I see. So on the other side of these doors yeah. is the chamber. Yeah. I sit down with member of parliament Kamal Dagani. We meet in a hallway just outside the main chamber. Where is he going to sit? He'll sit on that side. Dagani is deputy chair of the National Security and Foreign Affairs Committee. While he supports the 2015 Iran deal, he thinks the U.S. is taking advantage. I think the agreement should have been written in a way that Americans couldn't use any loopholes or any opportunity to sanction Iran again. I hear the same thing from almost everybody I talk to. But University of Tehran assistant professor Fouad Izadi says it best. So a lot of people in Iran are asking, you're getting sanctions before the agreement and you're getting sanctions after the agreement. So what's the use of accepting what the U.S. wants you to accept? Fouad regularly consults with Iran's foreign ministry. He says Iranian leaders are exasperated. They accuse the U.S. of moving the goalposts, that one day it's about nukes, the next day it's human rights. Fouad believes the real reason for U.S. pressure is something else altogether. I think one of the primary objectives that the U.S. has in this part of the world is uh, to make sure that uh, the oil that exists here is uh, directly or indirectly controlled by the United States. Ford reminds me that British and American companies once dominated Iran's oil production. After the 1979 Iranian Revolution, the new government nationalized the oil industry. He believes the U.S. wants to restore economic, political, and military control over Iran as it tried to do in Iraq. They're interested in having governments that are pro-U.S., that listen to U.S. in their foreign policy, and that make sure that the oil prices are not too high. Oil is a major factor in U.S. geopolitical calculations. A few weeks later, I go to Washington, D.C. I'm in Lafayette Square, across the street from the White House, to rendezvous with a former U.S. intelligence officer. Mr. Pillar, I presume. Paul Pillar is a former CIA analyst. He's met many times with presidents in the White House Situation Room. He reflects the view of the CIA 
that Iran did conduct nuclear weapons research. I think Iran did have the nuclear weapon option as something that it at least had in mind and wanted to preserve as an option. But Paul says Iran suspended its nuclear weapons program long ago. That, of course, was the headline item. The headline item in two different national intelligence estimates, or NIEs. In 2007 and 2011, all the major U.S. intelligence agencies came together to issue NIEs about Iran and nukes. They found that while Iran was likely keeping the door open to the possibility of nuclear weapons, it had actually suspended its program years earlier, way back in 2003. So when it comes to the threat of Iranian nuclear weapons, Paul is quite clear. I don't think Iran was ever a nuclear threat to the United States. Paul doesn't think anything has changed since those NIEs were issued. The International Atomic Energy Agency, which conducts on-the-ground inspections, says Iran is abiding by the nuclear agreement. And all the nations, besides the U.S., that signed the nuclear deal agree that Iran is in compliance. The agreement is working. So from a standpoint of what best serves U.S. national interest, it really is mystifying that uh, Washington is in the kind of uh, snit about Iran and, and nuclear matters. All of this raises a big question. If the U.S. knows Iran hasn't had a nuclear weapons program since 2003, why are Trump and leaders in Washington so worried? Patrick Claussen works at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, a conservative think tank with influence inside the Trump White House. He tells me Iran is hiding something. Iran has put a lot of effort into, and a lot of money, and a lot of prestige, into building facilities which don't have any obvious civilian use, uh, but do have a very clear potential military use. So do you think that even as of today, Iran has, its nuclear program is really aimed at uh, developing nuclear weapons? Look, I think that its program is aimed at having that option. And uh, that's disturbing. Nuclear program or not, Patrick argues, the U.S. is justified in imposing sanctions given Iran's human rights record and support for terrorist groups. It's very difficult to see circumstances under which Iran is going to satisfy the United States on those issues. When you really boil it down, Patrick says the U.S. and Iran are just politically incompatible. And it, certainly it will continue to be the case that just as the Iranian government would be delighted if the U.S. government fell, so the United States government would be delighted if the Iranian government fell. But the story isn't over. Just days after I left Iran, this happened. Protests in Iran. They're being called the largest political protests in that nation since 2009. Protesters attacked a police station last night, about 200 miles south of Tehran. Outrage over skyrocketing prices for food morphing into broader anti-regime anger. Starting in late December of 2017, tens of thousands of mostly young workers took to the streets. They rallied against high unemployment, government repression, and soaring prices for some essential goods. Some even chanted death to the dictator, referring to Iran's top political leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. I tried to contact the electrician, Arya, but most messaging apps were blocked. After a few days, I got through to him. He said the situation was tense. I know many people that took part in both demonstrations. Today, a group of people comes out and protests against the regime. Tomorrow, the same people go and take part in a pro-regime demonstrations, so they can have both sides. Arya explained his friends were hedging their bets because they were so afraid of a government backlash. People are fearful of the government. Not that they don't want change. They do. But since they know that this government is powerful and won't give up easily, they are afraid. People really want a revolution, but also they're afraid to lose what they have. Arya's friends had good reason for concern. The Iranian government cracked down hard on the protests. 25 people were killed and nearly 5,000 arrested. In January and February, individual women continued the protests. Instead of wearing the mandatory headscarves, they took them off and waved them in the air. For now, the mass protests are over. But the Iranian people's opposition, both to government policies and U.S. interference, seems likely to continue for years to come.
Reporter Reese Ehrlich has covered Iran since 2000 and is the author of The Iran Agenda, the real story of U.S. policy and Middle East crisis. His reporting from Iran was made possible by a grant from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. When it comes to nukes, North Korea claims it can launch one at the U.S. To understand that country, one journalist went undercover as a school teacher. If she'd been caught... I think that I would have been sent to a gulag sentence, lifetime. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. The Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea, have just wrapped up. One moment from the opening ceremonies gained worldwide attention. And no, I'm not talking about that oiled-up guy from Tonga. The opening ceremony here in Pyeongchang, nearly 3,000 athletes competing from 92 different countries But the spotlight at the opening ceremony on the unexpected show of unity between North and South Korea. The two countries marched under a unified Korean flag, and the leaders even shook hands. It all looked good on camera, but the tensions over North Korea's nuclear program haven't gone away. North Korea has basically been doing missile tests constantly. That's journalist Suki Kim. I mean, their latest nuclear test was September. And yet, now we have like a happy together Korea moment. First of all, it doesn't really make sense. Second, that just legitimizes North Korea. Suki wanted to know what life in North Korea was like. So in 2011, she did something really dangerous. She went undercover, taking a job as an English teacher at a private college. A Christian group ran the school they promised to leave religion out of their lessons. Her time there gives us a glimpse into one of the most isolated countries in the world and helps answer the question, how big of a nuclear threat is North Korea? The moment she arrived on campus, she began to understand what it was like living under the great leader. It was this military compound. There were about 30 foreigners teaching who were uh, all evangelicals from around the world. I lived in a dormitory where my minder was living downstairs from me. So he watched me 24-7. All my classes were recorded and reported on. And I had to get every lesson plan approved by the North Korean staff who also lived within that campus. I ended up living there for six months in Pyongyang. And then I wrote a book called Without You, There Is No Us. So I I read your book. It's it's just absolutely stunning. Um, Oh, thank you. um, The school that you were teaching at was a boys' school, and the boys there were from the political elite families. And and, and you actually lived on campus with them. What was that like? Well, there were, um, I guess, age 19 and 20. So they were really young men, although they seemed so much younger the more I got to know them. A lot of it having to do with them being so infantilized, that's what abuse and control do to people because they have no agency. In your book, when you describe North Korea, the images that came to mind for me was something out of The Hunger Games, like a dystopian world where everybody kind of moves in one direction towards the great leader. Did you feel that way before you were undercover? Until you really live within the system, it's really hard to gauge what goes on. And, you know, that people are not allowed to leave. The foreigners really don't get to see anything that goes on there. Not for like three or four or five years, for 70 some years. It was Far, far worse than I ever thought it was going to be. There's no escape. There's no escape, but also how can a human life exist this way where everything works according to the great leader system? It was horrifying. (laughs) 
적들의 특수작전 무력과 거리 전략 단도탄 대주간 캔더로켓 장착용 소소탄 시험에서 완전 상강. Suki heard reports about how the government installed speakers in every home to broadcast propaganda and how it built more than 35,000 statues of the great leaders, grandfather, father, and son, across a country about the size of Kentucky. The whole time you were in North Korea, you weren't just teaching, so you're, you're writing this book. How did you, like, hide the notes I had to erase every trace from my computer. And then I would put everything on USB sticks. Um, I had them on my body at all times, wore them like a necklace. I never was separated from my USB sticks. You're going undercover with this brutal regime. You're reporting on them. You're, You're writing stuff. If the regime found out, what do you think would have happened? They would have been spying, right? Right. So I think that I would have been sent to a gulag sentence, lifetime. That fear was just a bone-chilling fear every second. What kind of relationships did you form with the people there? You know, relationship was not allowed, really. But because I lived with this young man and they were taken away from their home and living in this school led by foreigners, and I'm a Korean-American among these foreigners... I think they got attached, but at the same time, I couldn't really trust them because they were also reporting on me as well, I was told. However, they're still kids. I made them do a lot of letter writing because I was teaching English and trying to find out what's going on in their world. And slowly they did open up. What surprised you about their lives? They were hilarious and just adorable and charming. And then things would suddenly take a turn where there's, they lied all the time. You know, they lied about all sorts of things for no reason whatsoever. When your lie comes from the top, every book, every music, every single thing they're ever exposed to is basically a bunch of lies. You do wonder what happens to human psychology when you're in that for that long, in complete isolation. Did you ever get the sense that, like, under all of the love for the great leader or the silence, did you ever get the feeling that under it all was discontentment? So, I mean, people ask me that a lot. Did they know what's going on outside? You know, was there any sign of revolt there? The thing is, in that system, first of all, you cannot be curious about the outside world, even if you have an inkling, because if you are curious and you show that, then you would be punished. You're not only going to be sent to a gulag, but your family will be. I mean, what I found unfathomable there more and more and more was that thinking was simply not allowed. And there was also no time. You know, if you have duties all day long from like 5.30 until you go to bed, there is not a whole lot of time. So we've got Kim Jong-un in North Korea who has just launched some missiles that could possibly hit the United States. Then we've got Donald Trump, who, different than any other American president before, has engaged with Kim Jong-un in a way that feels bombastic. I mean, are you scared that we're going to end up in a nuclear war? The only player who's new and totally different is Donald Trump. Kim Jong-un is not so different from his father and the grandfather who've held that position. So North Korea is doing what it's always been doing. Those horrible statements he makes about threatening to bomb U.S. is the same as always. Um, It's just making the news because Donald Trump comes back with the same kind of thing on the same tone. And his belligerent, very, very erratic messages are worrying because, you know, wars do happen out of mistakes. Mm -hmm. So you're not worried that Kim Jong-un actually wants to shoot a nuclear weapon. You just think it's all bravado. Well, because they've always done that. I mean, it's it's this threat of, you know, war threat is what North Korea is. You know, my students, they didn't use the word classroom. They used the word platoon. They were brought up from day one as if war is going to happen tomorrow. So it's nothing new. What about how the American government should approach North Korea? It would be 
disingenuous for me to even pretend that I have a solution. Nobody has had a solution with this. You know, you're dealing with a nation that doesn't honor agreements. It's a land of lies. I think there is actually no other way but to push some resources to bring information into North Korea, which people do try, mm-hmm. but none of it seems to work. But maybe a dribble is better than none. Before we close, I, I want to go back to the young man that you taught in Korea. Do you still miss him? I don't know if miss is the right word. You know, I mean, from a journalist's position to a source, they're not source, they're my subjects. Um, Suki, Suki, I'm reading the book and you are falling in love with these kids like they're your children. I know that they're like, from a very journalist uh, point of view, they're your subjects, but I'm reading the book and like you are in love with these kids. I know you're in love with these kids because as you're writing it, I'm like, oh my God, I'm in love with these kids. I think that that, that's what part of the embedded journalism is that you are such a deep in that emotion. And without that, I think that uh, feelings cannot really be created in a way, you know, be written or described. There is a bit of a removal. I mean, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's always sort of this kind of heartbreak in a way because their lives are just, I mean, there's nothing happy about it. They live in North Korea. They're who they are. So I think there's always a sadness for that. And I wish I never hear about them because I feel like if I ever hear about them, it would be in a negative way. And I wish they would just be safe and do what would just keep them alive in that world. Suki Kim talked to us from Seoul, South Korea. She's the author of Without You, There Is No Us. We spent most of the hour looking at nuclear threats. We want to end today's show with something different. Complete global disarmament. Perhaps someday in the future there will be a magical moment when the countries of the world will get together to eliminate their nuclear weapons. Unfortunately, we are not there yet, sadly. The thing is, it's not magic. It's work. In fact, even as the president has been tweeting out threats about nuclear weapons, a few folks at the State Department have been designing a plan for a nuclear-free future. It's not an easy problem. Foreign Service Officer Mike Edinger runs a small project with a long name, the International Partnership for Nuclear Disarmament Verification. Try saying that three times. You have to be able to verify that what you've done in reducing or eliminating uh, weapon systems uh, has actually taken place. You have to convince other countries you've gotten rid of your nukes. This means Mike spends time coordinating with experts from 20-some countries. They get together and figure out exactly how to physically get rid of nuclear weapons in a verifiable way. It's tricky because no country wants another country to watch them take their weapons apart. This amazed me. Even in some distant future, imagining that the politics have changed and we are all dismantling our nukes, preparing to destroy them, Mike says the assumption is that nations would keep their weapons hidden. But isn't the only reason you wouldn't want someone seen is because you think one day you might have to have the nuclear weapon again? Well, I, you don't want others to, to be able to see that, um, particularly those that don't have them because of the potential that they could take that information and build a weapon. It just it seems to me like all of this is circular, right? Like um, we want to get rid of nuclear weapons, but uh, we can't trust that the other side is going to get rid of nuclear weapons. And so if we can't trust that they're not going to get rid of them, we actually don't want to get rid of them. Well, and it's not even so much as can't trust. It's the the old Ronald Reagan mantra, trust but verify. So to verify, the project spent two years coming up with a very specific process. Imagine a nuclear weapon inside a big sealed shipping container. Inspectors stand outside and take detailed measurements of radiation and explosives. The container is hauled away and the weapon is dismantled in secret. Then, inspectors measure every component coming out to make sure that all the parts are accounted for. Bottom line, this is about coming up with tools the world could grab off the shelf when, or really if, there's ever a political agreement to get rid of nuclear weapons. Just 
personally, do do you think it's possible that we'll 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 get to a, a time when we don't have any nuclear weapons? Um, I, I certainly don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, and frankly, I don't spend a lot of time focused on that. It's the it's the practical work that if we're going to get there, you have to go through steps. I told Mike I haven't worried about nuclear war since I was a kid, but now I think about my kids and what they might be feeling. Do you have kids? How, do, how would you talk to them about this? I do. I'm the wrong guy to ask because I've been in the nuclear field for my entire adult life. And particularly uh, as a guy who used to sit on alert uh, in the ICBM world, I have a, uh, a somewhat uh, gallows humor when it comes to nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons issues. So I think you're the exact right person to ask because you know more than me. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, want, I want you to give me something to tell my kids like, ah, I don't think it's going to happen or tell me like I need to build a fallout shelter. Like, help me out. Well, uh, I'll be honest with you. I have two teenage boys and I have the list of issues that I have to, to really worry about with them is so long. And this is so far down on that list that um, it's, it's nothing that I routinely talk about uh, at home with my kids. This work Mike is doing started under President Obama. For the first two years, Russia and China participated as observers, but they're not participating anymore. Iran and North Korea were never invited. The Trump administration has promised to support this work, even as it seeks a trillion dollars to modernize the U.S. nuclear arsenal in the face of perceived threats. The security situation right now internationally is is not great, and our look is much further down the road. It's been just over 70 years since the first nuclear bombs killed hundreds of thousands of people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mike's work reminds me that people have been working to get rid of these weapons for almost as long. Our lead producer for today's show was Emily Harris. She had help from Anayansi Diaz-Cortez and Amy Walters. Reb Myers edited this episode. Reese Ehrlich's reporting from Iran was supported by a grant from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Our production manager is Mwende Henahosa. Today's show was mixed by Ramtin Arablui, along with our sound design team, the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando Mamanyo Aruda. They had help from Kat Shuknet. Our acting CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Edson, and remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>